Welcome to the Good Growing Podcast. I am Chris Enroth, horticulture educator with University of Illinois Extension, coming at you from Macomb, Illinois. And folks, this is something we're doing new to this week. We're doing video, because we're always dressed like this. Didn't you know? This is what I look like. Um, but if you are listening to the audio-only version, you can head over to a YouTube link, and I will put that in the show notes below, and you can see two of our three faces here on the podcast. I will say I am, I am masked right now. So, But you can check out our Halloween get-up for this Halloween episode, uh, festive, uh, festivus of Halloweenness that we are doing right now. And I am joined, as always, by our co-hosts that are here with us every single week. We have Katie Parker, local foods educator and field mouse that has hopped in to say hello. Hello, Katie. Hey, Chris, how's it going? It's warm. It's really warm <laughs> where I'm at. It's like hot and humid. And um, I'll say, I, I, I don't think I can do this all day long. Is, is that not your mask you wore when you go out and about? Well, it is. It is. But, you know, my trips out are short. And sweet. You know, I've been wearing this thing all day long. And um, I don't know, maybe I am having too much fun with it. But um, yes, it does double as my very own protective face cover covering for COVID. So but why did you choose field mouse today? <laughs> well, I honestly didn't think we were going to dress up until we <laughs> Until you sent out a Zoom invite <laughs> 10 minutes or 10, 20 minutes before the podcast. <laughs> so I frantically um, scrounged around our house to find something to put on. And where I used to work, we were the field team. And so we dressed up last year as field mice. And so this is, I still had my um, ears from that. Well, that's perfect. And yeah. this time of year, as the corn and beans get picked, the mice come a running, it seems there you like. There you go. Yep. <laughs> so, yeah, we have, uh, uh, we do have a black cat who we see in our backyard very almost every day now with a little mouse in his mouth. So, um, that's a good cat. It's a very good cat uh, practicing the circle of life in our very own yeah. backyard. Yes. And well, Katie, we are also joined by um, someone who I, I've known him as this for years, but now he is the very likeness of Yukon Cornelius from Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. <laughs> we have Ken Johnson, horticulture educator uh, in Jacksonville, Illinois. Hey, Ken, aka Cor Mr. Yukon Cornelius. <laughs> Hello, Chris and Katie. Did the snow bring you in yesterday? It did. It, it inspired me. <laughs> plus having red hair helps so and the giant beard it's a spitting image do you have the handlebars going i do i got aha i see <laughs> I mean, maybe better next year after i let them grow out for another year yeah oh yeah definitely you're not shaving i don't think right yeah nope i don't see that happening <laughs> so this was a I don't know, a running joke. Ken, have you always thought of yourself as a lookalike for Yukon Cornelius? 
Uh, not really. It wasn't until doing PSEP training a couple of years ago with <clears throat> Dave Robson, who used to be um, with the um, with the PSEP team. He used to be an educator. Um, he's retired, but he was helping out with it. And I, I walked up and he started laughing at me and told me I looked like UConn Cornelius because he had just gotten done watching it. And so... He's, he is the reason for this mm -hmm. get up. And then he told all of us and none of us can unsee <laughs> what he put in our brains. So yeah, I'm glad to see that you finally embraced it. Yes. <laughs> my, wife wouldn't let me get a, my wife wouldn't let me get a pickaxe though. So <laughs> I, don't, I don't have the full get up. You should just wear that year round. <laughs> <laughs> I may have to. <laughs> Oh, well, this is a fun episode today, folks. We are uh, going to be talking about spooky plants. So uh, this week, Ken uh, put together a good growing blog post all about different types of spooky themed or, you know, kind of plants that, that might have kind of a dark name or a theme into uh, what they are and do. So, um, Ken, if you want to kick it off with the first one in the list of spooky plants, what do we have uh, from uh, your article this week? So the first one I wrote about is dragon arum or dragon lily. Um, and this is, is a plant that's native to um, Europe, kind of the, the Balkans region. Um, so one, it's got that scary dragon name. Um, and two, it's got um, horrible smelling flowers. So it's kind of a double whammy, scary name, scary smelling. So, and I will say I did plant a couple of these this weekend, um, relatively close to my house by the front walk, maybe not the best location, but these are kind of borderline hardy in this area. So figured it may be probably a little bit warmer next to the driveway and house. And I'll have to see if they make it through the winter and, and get some nice stinky flowers for me. So do these look like the miniature um, corpse flowers? Is that a type of arum that we always, like I subscribe to Missouri Botanical Garden, Chicago Botanic Garden, and you know, all of these big botanic gardens, they have these huge corpse flowers that when they're in bloom, they, it gets media attention. Is this similar to that? Yeah, so it is a type of arum. So yeah, it's, it's a much kind of smaller version than that. Um, that, that spadix or the spathe, um, the guy that outer covering is kind of a, a purplish, dark purple color. And if you know anything about pollinator syndromes, that usually means it's going to be fly pollinated because it's kind of resembling that rotting meat. So it has the smell to go along with it. Hmm. Grow on more flies so it gets pollinated better. And from what I've read, it's usually smells real bad for maybe a day or two and then kind of dissipates. So I'll have to report back later if I ever get any blooms on it. Are the kids excited for it? <laughs> I didn't tell them. <laughs> <laughs> Someday they're going to walk outside and they're like, Dad, it smells like something dead out there. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> tell, them, tell them to go pick the flowers. <laughs> Make your mom a nice bouquet here, kids. <laughs> well, Ken, this next one on your list here, I have encountered this one before. I don't like it very much. Um, it hurts. It's called the devil's walking stick. What can you tell me about the devil's walking stick? So devil's walking stick, this is actually um, a native uh, tree species that we have. Um, and the cool thing about this and kind of how it gets its name is that its stems, um, its trunk and all that are covered with spines. Um, and if you can get online, you can find some pictures or, or look, I've got some links in the, in the blog post, you know, the stems are just completely covered. I mean, these kind of, they're kind of short, but they're fairly thick spines um, and stuff. So 
I would imagine if if the devil had a walking stick, it would probably look something mm-hmm. similar to that. Yeah, they're very gnarly looking. It's like a it's like a rose on steroids, or maybe a rose with rose rosette. You know, kind of the same looking deal. But yeah, it's they are gnarly looking. And another cool thing about them is they actually have the the largest leaves of any plant in North America. So they have these giant compound leaves that can get two to five feet long, two to four feet wide. So pretty cool. I did not know that. That's very interesting. I want to and keep trying to get my wife to let me plant one in the front yard. But <laughs> <laughs> she won't let me. Keep people away like from the as, house. Yeah. Do it as a natural fence. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Weave it together. Yeah. That'll keep people out. <laughs> That sounds very haunted house-ish, like Halloween-esque, <laughs> very, very thematic. So this next one on your list, I get phone calls about this uh, quite a bit. People asking if this is an edible wild berry, um, but deadly nightshade. So Ken, is this, the, is, is this something that people should be eating? <laughs> this is not one I would recommend eating. There's, there's a reason it's called deadly nightshade. So there are some, a few native plants or plants that we have, other plants that are also called deadly nightshade, but the one I'm talking about is the um, Atropa belladonna, and this uh-huh. one is native to, to Europe. Um, it gets those kind of purplish, dark purple, almost black berries on them, um, and unfortunately, they're kind of sweet tasting, which makes them kind of enticing, um, but from, from what I found, as few as two berries can kill a kid, um, and 10 berries is a lot of times often enough to kill an adult, so definitely not something you want to to mess around with and throughout history it's been used to to poison people and i found stuff with you know roman army using it and, and stuff so it has a long history of of death with it is this the same nightshade that cleopatra used for um for her ne'er-do-wells and also you know she would use it to, to kill people or um didn't she also use it as eye makeup? Am I thinking something totally different? So yeah, so yeah this actually was used used as um, eye drops. Okay. To, um, to dilate pupils and stuff. So the, mm-hmm. the belladonna, the, the species name, that's where that comes from. So it was used as eye drops. And it's still used today in, by ophthalmologists when they're dilating pupils or they're doing kind of surgery and stuff on eyes. That's what um, they're doing? Oh, I didn't know that. So it's a very, very diluted um, or it could be something else, but it has been used in the past. Um, so the atropine is also part of it. Natropine is a, um, uses an antidote for some different poisons and stuff as well. So there are some redeeming qualities to it, but probably definitely one you want to stay away from. Cause even if you were to handle it, um, with those toxins can kind of soak in through your skin and cause some pretty bad dermatitis and stuff. It seems like, you know, a lot of uh, a good medication can be derived from natural botanicals, but too much of a good thing can also be a bad thing. So, you know, too much of, say, uh, a heart medicine, a botanically derived heart medicine can help control heartbeats and such. But uh, if you get more than you should, then suddenly your heart just explodes. And so that's why we're not doctors. We're just plant people. Yes. Yes. The dose makes the poison. Exactly. There you go. Sorry, my glasses are really fogged up. I can't really see the screen right now. <laughs> so, so the last one I did <laughs> was uh, <laughs> was common witch hazel. Um, and really the only thing scary about this one is the name, the witch uh, part of it. <clears throat> but and kind of looking at looking at this plant, um, 
that witch doesn't actually come from what we typically think of as witches. Um, it comes from an Anglo-Saxon word, um, weish, which means pliant or bendable. Um, and this plant was commonly used um, as a dousing rod. So looking for groundwater and stuff. So that's kind of how it originally got, to, got its name is probably called um, weish hazel. And that morphed into to witch hazel over time. Um, but this is a native plant, um, has these really bright yellow, um, and this particular species, fragrant flowers. Um, and they start producing these in October, um, and they can go in, in th go on through the winter. Um, so this is probably one of the latest blooming, if not the latest blooming, at least native plant that we have. So I'll give you some good fall and winter color um, with this plant. I, I do love witch hazel. Um, and, and you mentioned, uh, Hamillus virginiana on this one, the common witch hazel. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a, kind of a, a whole a spectrum of witch hazel, though native here and throughout North America, from shrub to, to tree size witch hazels. But in terms of landscape use, I think common witch hazel is that the most common one that we use. I can't remember if they've hybridized that or not. Maybe they haven't. That there's one that uh, the, the species begins with a V. Oh, is it the vernal, vernal witch hazel? Vernal witch hazel, yeah. yeah. I don't know if that's a native one, but I think that one is used fairly frequently. Is that the common one? Oh, yeah, I, I just, I know I'm seeing more and more witch hazel used. And that's, it is a wonderful tree to give us flowering kind of outside of the normal window we think of flowering. And it was, it was always fun to identify for my woody plant ID class because being witch hazel, it was actually more towards the end of the year and it was the only tree in flower when we got to that point. Make it easy on you. Mm-hmm, easier to ID. So Katie, I have a question. Ken has kind of told us about some neat and nasty kind of plants. If you had to pick the worst or the most evil weed out there, what one that tops your list? Most evil weed? Yeah, what's the one that just like you, you see it and you're like, I have to get rid of it now. Oh, I mean, means. that's... <laughs> that's kind of every weed for Is me. Is it every weed? <laughs> <laughs> I, I prefer not to have weeds. Um, I mean, in row crops, we have a lot of herbicide resistant weeds. And so that creates a lot of issues. That's often your water hemp and your mare's tail. Mm -hmm. uh, so those are some where you can see that they have grown and mutated due to herbicide resistance. And so you can easily tell which weeds those are and you, you have to pull those because those are going to cause issues. Um, but in the yard, I would say like yellow nutsedge is kind of uh, one of those weeds that you want to get rid of because it, it's hard to control. Um, and so when you see that in the yard, it's just kind of like, well, we need to pull that real quick or do something to get rid of it. Oh yeah. It, it is the worst. Yeah. <laughs> not like it at all. I wouldn't mm. call them spooky or anything, but yeah, they're just a pain in, pain in the butt. Yeah. What about you, Ken? Do you have any uh, weeds that top your nightmare list? Probably nimble will. Nimble will. Now, I Creeping learned... Charlie and all that stuff doesn't really bother me, but for whatever reason, nimble will. I think it just because it looks so much different and it's, it kind of looks full, but when you kind of pull it, there's barely anything holding on there. 
so that when the when the dog runs around and starts digging it, it comes up rather easily. Mm-hmm. You know, I have giant bear patches and <laughs> <laughs> mud patches in the yard. And stuff, so. <clears throat> I, I found out I have far much more nimble will than I originally thought. Now that it is starting to go uh, dormant, and the rest of the yard is uh, staying green. Well, not much of the yard is staying green, so I have far more nimble will than I thought. And I wondered, how is this weed everywhere? And I after some reading, this thing is native to North America. And so I'm like, well, hmm, it's supposed to be here. It's like dinosaurs. (laughs) (laughs) They're not. There's birds though. (laughs) Yes, there are birds. Well, and speaking of other native plants, what about carnivorous plants? Those are kind of spooky. They are the plant that snacks back that's not how you say that, but they are the plant that bites back. You know, if we, we think of, you know, us eating plants, well, carnivorous plants eat other things. So has anybody grown a carnivorous plant before? I have have not. What did you grow? Yeah. What'd you grow? So I've grown Venus flytraps, pitcher plants, sundews, um, Tried some of the bladderworts, some of the butterworts. I've tried, I tried quite a few different things. Things I've had most success with are going to be the, um, the pitcher plants. So there's two different types. There's the North American pitcher plants, the Saracenia. Um, we actually have one species that's native to Illinois. Um, and actually, if you go up to Volo Bog up by the Wisconsin border, um, they actually have some purple pitcher plants there um, that you can see kind of in the wild. Um, the rest of those are native more to the Gulf Coast. Those are the taller pitcher plants. Um, and then tropical pitcher plants, those are native to Southeast Asia. Um, I've got a couple of those plants. Um, sundews are, are pretty easy to grow uh, too. Uh, Venus flytraps are probably the, the most popular one. You find those in grocery stores and, and nurseries and stuff and their little plastic death cubes because um, they kind of get cooked in there and stuff. So that explains a few things. So I bought a Venus flytrap. The thing was dead before I got it home practically. I I got the distilled water and everything to water it. And oh, I would say a week later, it, it was dead. I'm like, well, how did this happen? And it was in one of those little cubes that it, it came in. And I wonder if it just got cooked or you know, some something. I bought a dead plant, essentially. I just didn't realize it at the time. Yeah, so this cube, they like these plants like kind of the higher humidity, but those cubes are probably too humid. You probably get some fungal growth in there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at the the grocery store, the nursery, hardware store, wherever you're getting it from, they're probably not watering them with distilled water. And depending on how long they've had them and and stuff, I think that's probably the, the biggest issue people have with plants. Is probably one of the most common reasons they die is because they're not watering them um, with distilled water. Some of them can handle kind of tap water better than others but tap water's got a lot of salts in it and stuff and that will kind of accumulate in the soil and kill the roots these plants most of them are going to be native to more bog areas uh, and stuff and they're just not used to having a lot of nutrients and salts in the water that's why they evolved to eat insects and stuff that's where they get a lot of the nutrients from so those roots basically get burned up with all the the fertilizers or the salts that are in the water so if i i feed my Venus flytrap, say I bought one that is alive actually. And if I give it maybe like um, 
a very low dose of fertilizer, do I need to still feed it flies? Probably not. Um, and a lot of times they don't really need all that much and people grow them inside and they don't necessarily catch a lot of insects. Sometimes they'll, they'll feed them or, um, or they'll catch flies and feed them on, you know, smaller plants people will use, or some of the pitcher plants they'll use like blood worms and stuff that you can get for fish food. They'll feed them. People will feed them that. Um, I've heard people using like the orchid diluted orchid fertilizer, uh, to fertilize stuff. So there, yeah, there's all kind of alternative ways you can feed these plants if you don't have insects around. What would you feed yours? Uh, so I, most of when I have them, um, I put them outside during the, as soon as it gets warm enough. Um, and some of the pitcher plants, I've got a little bog garden. I bought a little pond liner and filled that up with, with peat moss and stuff. So I've got them growing outside year round. Um, the other stuff I move out in the summer and let them catch their stuff. And, and there's usually always flies or something flying around inside. So they're they're catching stuff anyway. And, and during the winter, a lot of our, at least the ones that are native to North America, they're going dormant. So they're dying back. And they just have, for like Venus fly traps, they just have a small rosette of traps. Um, so they're not really catching much anyway. They're, they're not really doing much. So it's not, not as important to feed them during, during the winter and stuff for, at least for the temperate species. Tropical species is a little different story. Well, I think I need to start a new hobby of doing, maybe I'll try carnivorous plants again. Uh, or maybe I'll try some of these spooky plants that you wrote about, Ken. I, I don't know. There, there is one though. I bloodroot. Is that something that you you grow or have grown, or what do you? Could you tell me about bloodroot? Um, so this is one I wrote. So I did an article last year on spooky plants too. So I included bloodroot in that. I have not personally grown it. It is one I would like to um, grow in our backyard. We've got a, <clears throat> a bunch of trees along the property line, so it's pretty shaded. Um, so I thought about putting it back there. This is a spring ephemeral, so it comes up early in the spring, blooms, and then when it starts kind of heating up late spring, summer, it will die back and stuff. So, and the cool thing about this one is, is when you break it, it's got this reddish sap um, that comes out. So that's how they get their name. But have you had any experience, Chris or Katie, with it? I've seen it growing in the woods before and actually one of our master gardener project sites, it's a historical site, the Carl Sandburg historic site. They have it growing as a, a ground cover that, as you said, it's, it's ephemeral. It's just around in the spring, but you can go out there and you, I, I was out there and they showed it to me and they broke the stem and this reddish orange sap came oozing out. And that was the neatest thing I remember seeing. Yeah, before you joined the call, Wendy was telling us that she paints or has painted with the, with the sap. Oh, I bet. Yeah, you definitely could do that. It's That'd so bright and cool. vibrant. Yeah. Yeah. And the flowers are on it are real pretty too. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, folks, in addition to us just bantering around in our best garbs that we have available, we are also a question and answer show. So we have some questions submitted by you listeners into social media's extension offices around the state of Illinois. And our first one, Ken, what do you think? This one uh, comes from your neck of the woods. Uh, they want to know about planting asparagus. Is now the time to do it? So I, the ideal time for asparagus is going to be in the spring, um, kind of once you can start working the soil. So pretty early in the spring uh, is, is when we're typically gonna do that. Um, so you're gonna dig a trench um, a lot of times you kind of have a little 
little hill um, in the middle of that trench and you kind of put your crowns on that and kind of drape the roots over that. Um, typically kind of those, <clears throat> you want the plants, you don't want to necessarily grow from seed because seed is just going to kind of set you back a year or two before you can actually harvest. So you plant it that first year, let it come up. You don't harvest anything. Second year, you can harvest, I think it's for like a week or two. Third year, you can extend that out um, a few more weeks. And the kind of, by that fourth year, you can finally start going into your kind of your full harvest, so to speak. Um, and when you're trying to pick your, your asparagus, you probably want to look for um, a cultivar that is an all-male cultivar, predominantly male. Um, the males are not going to be producing berries. The females will produce berries and stuff on the plants. And, and while they're doing that, they're going to send some of their energy into that berry production. And that's going to be less. That's going into to kind of root and shoot production the following year. So with those male cultivars, those male plants, you get a little better yields off of those compared to female plants. And I think like the, the Jersey night, that Jersey series, that's one of the more commonly grown ones. I believe those are all predominantly male uh, plants when you buy those. Very good. And our next question, this uh, was a call that came into the office. So Katie, um, what do you think here in, in this situation? This uh, homeowner wanted to transplant uh, what they thought was pompous grass. And I think later you uncovered it was common reed grass, um, also known as Phragmites. Uh, they wanted to transplant it from where they found it into uh, a, a prairie area. Is that right? Was it they wanted to go more create like a little naturalized landscape bed and they wanted to know the best way to do this. So what, what, what advice can we give? Yeah, so you're probably most familiar with common reed. Um, we see it a lot as we're driving along, uh, a lot of times in road ditches um, and it, it does pretty well there. And that's probably uh, one of the best places to keep it as it is very invasive. Um, it obviously does well in those road ditches for a reason. Uh, something else isn't growing there or it has taken over. Um, it is fairly attractive. It has a pretty seed head. Uh, so I could understand why he would want to transplant it into his yard. However, I wouldn't suggest doing that um, as you could have some issues further on down the road. Yes, I, I would agree. I, I know with Phragmites, um, that is something that a lot of um, uh, landowners battle routinely in their, their waterways. If they're trying to remove invasive species. Uh, when we had Chris Evans on the podcast, uh, we referenced this publication that's, uh, uh, I can't read it, Management of Invasive Plants and Pests of Illinois. And uh, this is actually free. You could just Google this and download it online. Um, but we also have print copies at our offices, uh, happy to, to give out. And when they talk about Phragmites, they say um, mowing will increase the density. Digging it out is not good control. It will just make it angry. Burning will increase the density. Um, essentially what they're saying is you have to do a, a multitude of uh, modes of attack here from mowing to herbicide. And there's a lot of great information in this book, but they're recommending a kind of a combination or an alternating uh, glyphosate and, see if I can read the other one, imazapir, so an alternating those two uh, types of herbicides on this, on this plant combined with other good cultural and stewardship controls. Well, folks, that was an interesting show about 
spooky plants, carnivorous plants, and your homeowner questions. As always, the Good Growing Podcast is produced by Wendy Ferguson, and it is edited by me, Chris, the T-Rex and Roth. And of course, we are always happy to bring in our field mouse and Yukon Cornelius every single week here on the Good Growing Podcast. Katie Parker, Ken Johnson, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you. Yes, thank you. It was fun. Let's do it again next week. (laughs) (laughs) We shall do this again next week without masks or any kind of headwear. Let's let's make that promise. Um, We're going to try this uh, video thing out again. We're going to have a live show next week. We'll be posting that uh, on, we'll have the audio only version as usual, but then we will be posting uh, a video version of this on YouTube. Our guest is going to be Candace Hart. Candace is the state master gardener coordinator here in Illinois, and she is going to talk to us about houseplants. We're going to have an audience of master gardeners to throw their questions at us and see if they can stump us. I don't think it will be that hard, but we'll see how it goes. Cause houseplants and me, ah, uh, I don't know. I just, you know, we don't get along. They have to take care of themselves. Isn't that why you have kids? That's exactly, yes. <laughs> I have other things to nurture and care for. <laughs> Survival of the fittest. <laughs> Exactly. And I got some pretty strong houseplants. So, because they've survived me. Well, folks, this has been a fun, fantastic show. I can't wait to get this mask off, though. So, we are going to be signing off. Listeners, thank you for doing what you do best. And that is listening. And as always, keep on growing.